Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? Well, I'd be lying if I said I've ever been any better, so I'm doing great. <laughs> okay, no kidding around. We know everybody's tuning in this week. They can't wait to hear your thoughts on Bash at the Beach 98. It went down on July 12th from the Cox Arena in San Diego. It's going to draw a sellout, not a sellout, 10,095 fans. Now, 9,000 of those paid an incredible $314,842, plus more than a hundred grand in merchandise. It does a huge buy rate, 1.42. Wow. What a show. What a time in WCW. Of course, we should set the stage, I guess. Six days prior to this, less than a week prior to this, you guys blew it up at the Georgia Dome. Goldberg became the world champion, defeating Hulk Hogan. You can hear all about that in the archives at 83weeks.com. Six days later, you've got a new champ, but on top, it's all about the NWA. Is this the hottest like summer in the history of WCW? I, I think it has to be. You know, obviously July, you know, Bash of the Beach '96 with the the formation of the NWO and, and, and Hulk Hogan turning heel, arguably from a macro perspective, one would suggest that that might have been the biggest summer just because of the implications of it all, which led to this, really. Uh, but in terms of business, in terms of, like, like you said, you know, Hulk, uh, Goldberg winning the world title six days before this pay-per-view, this pay-per-view is loaded with talent, absolutely loaded with talent, two NBA champions, uh, uh, an NFL linebacker, in addition to one of the deepest and probably the best rosters we had at any point, you know, in WCW, all of that combined. Uh, yeah, I, I would have to say that this was one very hot summer. It was it was great that we were near the ocean in San Diego because it was hot everywhere else. It was an unbelievable time to be a WCW fan. You know, we rewatched it this week at my house, and the guy who handles all of our graphics here on the show and makes us look good, Dave Silva, was over, and he just kept going on and on. I mean, this was the height of his fandom, and I think 
so many of our listeners sort of feel the same way, which is why 83 weeks has been such a hit. Let's talk about some interesting stuff here. The business side of things, the prior two bash at the beaches were both held in Daytona beach, Florida. Why the move to San Diego for 1998? Couple reasons, really. Um, I, I never really liked the venue all that much in Daytona. There was, no, I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't, wasn't a bad venue, but it, it felt uh, a little tired to me. And also, as we've discussed so many times on this show, one of the biggest challenges that we had in building the WCW brand, including the pay-per-views associated with it, was you know becoming more of a national promotion. So between the fact that we had been to Daytona a couple times, it obviously was in the southeastern part of the United States, which was our back door, our backyard, so to speak. Uh, the desire was really to expand the brand and and try to get a stronger foothold in the West Coast because historically the West Coast was was really tough for WCW. If, if you go back and look at the history of WCW and TBS, you know, before Nitro and even after Nitro because of the, you know, we didn't have a border to border feed, you know, when Nitro first started. Um, WCW Saturday Night, which was the foundation for WCW for so many years, you know, aired at 3.05 on a Saturday afternoon on the West Coast. So we didn't really have a big fan base. Now, you know, with Nitro, um, and especially with the replay, we started to build that bigger fan base. But one of the things about sports entertainment, notice what I did there, sports entertainment, is that. Wait, hang on. Uh, Are you going to fucking do that all the time now? I, I don't know. I'm going to feel it no, out. No, come on, man. I'm, 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 I'm you know. Come on, know. man. All right. Okay, professional wrestling. Thank that you. Make you. Feel better. Uh, yeah. Right. Come on now. I know you got to do that shit on Tuesday, but it's Monday. Come on. <laughs> All right. One of the things about professional wrestling, one of the reasons why it has worked for so long, you know, I'm going to go into my spiel, my history spiel. You know, professional wrestling was one of the most successful forms of entertainment on network television at the beginning of television. You know, in, in syndication, which means local market television, um, professional wrestling long before cable was one of the most watched forms of entertainment in any given market in the United States, major market in the United States. Uh, usually aired on Saturdays or Sundays in a local market with a local promoter as a part of that local promoter's territory. But every single week, it was the most watched form of entertainment in any major market. Enter cable television. Professional wrestling is, excuse me, was and still is the most successful form of entertainment in cable television. And we can, you know, keep extending that out into the digital age, which we're obviously in the middle of now. And professional wrestling is still one of the most popular forms of entertainment in that universe. So there's a reason for that, aside from, you know, people just love, I think, the basic storytelling, good guy, bad guy, larger than life characters. And, and the escapism and, and aspirational nature and, and all that. Those are all great reasons why the product works. But another reason the product really works is because it travels. How many television shows do you know, other than professional sports, take that out of the equation, but any other form of entertainment, scripted or not, that travels to a local market? And the answer is not any or many, if, if at all. And that's one of the reasons that wrestling has always worked so well, because whether you live in Dubuque, Iowa, or Sioux Falls, South Dakota, or Chicago, or Atlanta, or Detroit, wherever, 
you know, these stars that you watch on television actually come to your market. In many cases, especially in today's environment, you get to interact with them with autograph signings and meet and greets and that type of thing. Well, at that point, you're building a connection to your audience, you know, by virtue of your live shows. And 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 all the radio and television and advertising and promotion that goes along with it in that local market. Where with WCW, because of the nature of the product and the time zone and all that kind of thing that I've already mentioned, we didn't travel to the West Coast too often. And that was one of the reasons why I tried as often as possible to to make shows in LA and in San Diego. And you know, we never really got into the Seattle market as much as we wanted to, but that's the reason for it. One, to get out of that same old, same old kind of southeastern environment that we were in and make us feel and appear to be a much more national and in some cases international brand. And also to start building a relationship with the local audience on a one-on-one basis. Let's get way deep in the woods here and just talk for a minute from a fan perspective, because anytime we, we take questions for a show named great American bash or beach blast or bash at the beach, we always get a question about why all the bashes and why all the beaches and you know, before there was a bash at the beach, there was a beach blast. Why was that changed? And was there anyone in marketing who took issue with, Hey, we've got a great American bash and now a bash at the beach. We could be confusing the marketplace. Anybody speak up and say, what's up with this? (laughs) No. And it was actually the marketing department that generally, um, had a lot of say and influence over the names of the pay-per-views. Keep in mind, it was the marketing department, Sharon Sadello, Mike Weber, who were primarily in contact with the pay-per-view providers and managed those relationships. And in doing so, they would often come to us with suggested names. And in retrospect, you know, I kind of think I probably should have stepped up and said, hey, guys, I I can't keep track of it all. Because it does get confusing, especially when you're, you know, you're promoting. It's not just the event itself. It's, you know, four weeks of television going into it for a period of a couple months between the bash at the beach and beach blast and all of that and great American bash. You know, you're, you're bashing your way through 12 or, you know, 16 weeks of television and it does get confusing, but nobody raised their hand, including me. And, and like I said, in retrospect, I wish I would have because, it is kind of a lot, but you know, the bash at the beach, you know, that branding, that, that idea, I think it was, it was a great one because that event took place in July. It was summertime. Summertime is when people go hang at the beach. So it kind of made sense, but there was just too much bashes, too many beaches. And it was indeed confusing. Well, what's not confusing is WCW is just on fire. You know, we mentioned the six days prior to this Goldberg would beat Hulk Hogan. Now he is the world champion and the United States champion. And that happened because Goldberg gets the big win. And when I say big, I mean the most viewed wrestling match in cable television history up to that point. Now the first quarter hour of the show, uh, to reach 5 million homes here, we got 5,054,000 homes in excess of 7 million total viewers, 6.91 rating at 11.8 share. It shatters the all time record of 4.7 million homes, uh, which happened where Hulk Hogan won the title from Randy Savage, uh, just a couple of months prior in April. So you guys are just, you know, breaking your own records at this point. And, and these are some longstanding records too. You know, when you go back 
to talk about what the gate was for that show. I mean, it's incredible that we're talking about this for a nitro that you've got this many people there. Um, the actual attendance given on the broadcast is 39,919 fans, but the actual number in the building was 41,412 fans, which is a sellout for the configuration that you had set up. And you're even turning away a few hundred fans. Um, it's really incredible. I mean, it's a company record. 35,514 paying fans. It's just unbelievable to think that this is, you know, even possible. I mean, it's the biggest week in the history of the promotion. I I know I'm putting it over pretty hard here, but when you tally up the nitro, the pay-per-view we're covering and the house shows they ran that weekend, it's over $2 million, $335,000 per event average plus another ridiculous 782,000 in merchandise plus probably six and a half million dollars from the pay-per-view. God damn, Eric, you guys are hitting home run here in every single metric. You know, what's even more amazing than those stats that you just rattled off. <clears throat> Juxtapose all of that success with the fact that two weeks after this pay-per-view, I was called to a meeting in Techwood where a whole group, of, and I'm not going to go through the whole story again, but a whole group of people I'd never heard of before that, A, didn't really like WCW, weren't really big fans of it being on the network, and number two, didn't know anything about the business. That group of people, three weeks, two or three weeks after this event, were sitting around a table telling me how I had to change the formula that got us to that point. Imagine that. It's crazy. It is. And, you know, that just tells you, you know, all you need to know about WCW at the time and the corporate structure. This Bash of the Beach, though, not really known for the Goldberg match. We're going to get into it. It's known for the main event. It's the NBA invasion of WCW. And, of course, on the undercard, you've still got Kevin Green, who is a big attraction in and of himself, you know, from a mainstream sports standpoint. But you've got one of the hottest rivalries in basketball now playing itself out inside the squared circle. You couldn't have written that any better. One of those, of course, is a lightning rod of controversy, Dennis Rodman. And I'm just curious because allegedly there's a no show that happens here. He was supposed to have appeared at the Georgia dome for one last big angle to promote the pay-per-view and he doesn't return phone calls. And Hogan tries to cover for him in the interview, but he's just a straight up no show. And the night before he was in Dallas at a Pearl Jam concert, guzzling wine from a bottle. He's on stage shirtless and shoeless and trying to sing along. And, you know, Eddie Vedder addresses it and says something like, I'm guessing you've been drinking for about three days straight. And I hear you are at your biggest show less than a week before your biggest pay-per-view and part of your main event. Nowhere to be found. Carry me through what was going through your mind. I wasn't shocked. I don't think anybody that knew Dennis at that time was. Um, look, Dennis had a Dennis had an issue. We all are aware of it now because it's very public. He's been in and out of treatment and in and out of issues with the law as a result of his drinking. You know, Dennis never did drugs, to, to my knowledge. Uh, he, but he he. Uh, he was a professional drinker. Let's put it that way. So, <laughs> I mean, he he was really he was an all pro uh, when it came to 
to drinking vodka. Um, yeah, we weren't surprised. And this is what, one of those situations where, okay, it is what it is. We got to make chicken salad out of chicken shit and figure out a way to make it work. That, I mean, there was not much more behind it. You know, we, tr we were trying to track him down. His agent was trying to track him down. I don't know if his agent really knew where he was or not and was trying to cover for him, but yeah, we, we knew what was up. Did you, I mean, you didn't have any concern that he was going to pull up lane for the pay-per-view or no show? No, that's, the, you know, that's the thing about Dennis, uh, is unpredictable and unprofessional as he could be. And this is a perfect example. Uh, we knew that if he got to the building, he's going to be fine. Once the red light was on, he was going to be fine. Dennis had amazing recuperative powers, you know, and I, I, in watching him train when we first started working with him, you know, he'd, he'd show up an hour late, he'd be dragging his ass, he'd be walking through the gym, wherever the ring was set up. I think the first time we did it, it was an airplane hangar somewhere in, in Orange County. Um, you, you know, you'd look at him, you'd think, oh my gosh, this guy's going to fall over. He, he's so hungover. He's not going to be able to crawl into the ring more or less do anything once he got there. And then once, once you get started, he was like perfectly fine. It was the freakiest thing I've ever seen. Uh, so I knew if we could get him to the building, we would be okay. The, the biggest challenge was getting him to the building. Well, you don't have that issue across the ring. Let's talk about Carl Malone. You know, we've talked about, uh, Dennis Rodman a lot here on the show, but I feel like we haven't really paid Carl enough love. So. Uh, let's sort of catch everybody up. Maybe you're, you're not, uh, old enough, or maybe you're not an American basketball fan, whatever the situation may be. Carl Malone was a fucking legend, power forward playing for the jazz at the time. He's six, nine, and he's got almost a wrestler's physique here. Very muscular. Um, but a real, you know, perennial all pro one of the best that ever did it. And the backstory here, you know, we talked about them, you know, this playing itself out both in the ring and, and out of the ring, the bulls and the jazz go head to head in the finals. And ultimately the bulls are going to beat the jazz in the finals in both 97 and 98, but it couldn't have come together any more perfect that these guys play the same position against opposing teams. And now they're both in the finals. Talk to me about, you know, Carl Malone and what you can share with us about, you know, his training and how all that came together. And then just how lucky you guys got that it wound up with their teams being together at the end. Yeah. First of all, a little backstory on Carl Malone that, that came about through diamond Dallas page. And I'm not sure how DDP, uh, first became acquainted with Carl, but he did somehow. And DDP came to me and said, hey, I talked to Carl. You know, he knows what you guys have done with Dennis. He'd like to get involved. But I went, holy crap. I mean, that's that was unbelievable. And DDP and I flew out to Salt Lake City uh, so I could meet with Carl. And you know, I wanted to get a feel for him, number one. And number two, start negotiating a deal with him. And I can't tell you how impressed I was with Carl Malone. As a human being, as a professional, as a man, he's just what a great, great guy. And what a great experience I had negotiating with him took me about 12 minutes. If that, um, I, I MF and him our most favored nation to him, which means he got paid what D Dennis got paid. So the negotiation, like I said, it, it, I don't, I don't think my coffee even started to cool off before we were done with that. 
and the rest of the time it was just him and he was almost um he's almost like a little kid in terms of his enthusiasm here i'm sitting across from one of the most impressive athletes in the world at that point uh, and he was such a humble and friendly guy who was so enthusiastic it was and, and I'm I lo- I love Dennis Rodman. He to this day I have a lot of respect and, and and love for Dennis. He's he's a friend, as flawed as he is and he is, uh, we all are in one way, shape, or form. He's still a good friend. But that being said, Carl Malone was the polar opposite of of Dennis Rodman, in terms of being a professional and easy to work with and all that. Um, now. The fact that they ended up playing against each other in NBA Finals, this is where it gets really fucking cool and a little treacherous because Turner Broadcasting, TNT, uh, was carrying those games, right? They had an NBA deal. Now, me being the wrestling guy (laughs) who is promoting a pay-per-view, I wanted to find a way to exploit that very... um, obvious opportunity, but I had to do it in a way that never got back to the NBA so that it could never get back to Turner Sports. Because if it looked like I was somehow trying to exploit an NBA game. Yeah, if you're if you're trying to work a real sport, <laughs> that's a real problem. Yeah, it's a real problem. That's Pete Rose. Uh not quite the same situation. But yeah, you I didn't I didn't want to get caught, you know, stepping over any boundaries, but I wanted to find, I wanted to walk right up to that line and step on it without stepping over it. So I, I talked to both, both Carl and Dennis and I had to do the, I had to do that even carefully because I didn't want those guys to just totally flip out on me. And I wasn't sure how they were going to react. I wasn't too worried about Dennis, but I was a little concerned about Carl. And I said, look guys, nothing that, I don't want you to do anything on the floor, you know, while the game's going on. Obviously, I'm not suggesting that. I would never in a million years, which was bullshit. If I thought I could get away with it, I would. Of course. But, but I said, I wanted to make sure that they knew I wasn't trying to affect the game. But if, like, you go off court, you know, something happens and there's a timeout or something that doesn't affect the game, if you guys get a little in each other's face, God forbid you were to push shove each other and look like you're going to get break into a fight. I'm not saying I want that to happen, but oh man, if that ever did happen, holy smokes, would that be a great thing? It's kind of the way I presented it to him. And sure enough, it did. <laughs> I love that. It was one of my favorite things, seeing them going after each other on the sidelines. It was kind of cool. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, Carl Malone's training. You said that once Dennis Rodman got in there, even though it may have looked like he was going to you know, tip over. Once he got going, it was, you know, like a fish to water. Same story for Carl? Yes. You know, Carl worked a lot harder at it. You know, Dennis Dennis was just, he's such a natural. He didn't have to work out. Dennis, you know, I, I when I first met Dennis, I, I met him at a hotel in Chicago, and uh, we went over to the training center where he was working out, and, you know, same thing. I, when I met him, I met him in his room. Dwight Manley, his agent, was there, and I met him up in his room, and we talked for a while. And the room smelled like, you know, there'd been a bachelor party going on in it, you know, for four days straight or four nights straight. I mean, it was just reeked of booze and whatever. And 
you know, same thing. You know, he drags his ass down to the gym and he looks like he can hardly walk and he's going to fall asleep. And then all of a sudden he picks up a basketball and he's like, whoa. And I talked to Dwight and I said, what is, how does he work out? He doesn't. It's just him. To this day, if you see him, you know, he looks like he works out four hours a day. He doesn't. And if he does, it's usually in a bar. You know what I mean? It's just, he's freaky that way. And I think Carl, obviously, you know, like I said, I think one of the best athletes, all around athletes in the world at that time, Carl worked hard at it though. He trained, he, he watched his diet, excuse me. He was, he was very, very professional the way he went about it. And the same was true with his, you know, ring work, you know, DDP worked with him a lot. Canyon, I think worked with him quite a bit. He took his training very, very seriously. Let's uh, let's talk about how serious the business has jumped here. This is my favorite part of the show each week, just to sort of let you strut that ass a minute for what was going on in the company. Let's take a look from, say, 95 to 98. We know the NWO is going to start in 96. We know 97 is going to be the biggest year in the history of the company. Somehow, 98 is bigger. In 95, your average attendance was 2,008 fans. In 98, it's 7,595 fans. Your average gate in 95 is $20,668. Your average gate three years later in 1998 is $148,468. Your average rating in 95 is a 2.1. Your average rating in 98, a 3.35. Buy rates are up too. your average pay-per-view show brings in 2 million bucks in 1995 and brings in 3.68 in 1998. Everything. I mean, you've got to feel like July of 98 that you've got the fucking Midas touch <laughs> until that meeting that took place at the end of the month. I did it, 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 And I, you know, I try to look back and, and remember, you know, what I was feeling or thinking at at this moment, at this pay-per-view. And it, it all happened so fast. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't, it's not like I would sit at home, you know, or when I'm driving out of my car or I'm sitting on a plane going somewhere. I never sat back and went, wow, we're just, we're on top of the world. You know, we're, we're doing so great. I never, I, I didn't think about it. You know, I, I said this before, I felt like I was, on, I look back at it now and I think the only thing I can, the only way I can try to describe it is like if you're on a treadmill, you know, I don't, I get on a treadmill a couple of times a year and I try to work out, you know, if I can get up to like four miles an hour, you know, I'm doing pretty good and, you know, I'm working pretty hard. You know, imagine being on a treadmill going 12 or 14 miles an hour. And if you can possibly keep up and that's probably what it, things felt like for me at the time if you can possibly keep up with that pace the last thing you want to do is look down at your feet and kind of check out your shoes Mm -hmm. you know what i mean because you'll go head first through a window and and crash and that's kind of the way i felt at this time and it it wasn't bad don't get me wrong it was exciting and i loved it i loved the adrenaline i loved the rush i loved the, the you know the amount of time i was putting into everything was great from that point of view but i never stopped to go, holy crap, we're on top of the world. Now, obviously, I was aware of ratings and I was aware of, you know, the business side of it because I had to report to Turner Broadcasting and, you know, we were meeting and exceeding all of our projections and all of our goals by, I don't know, threefold in some cases, twofold. So that was easy. But, I, you know, I had to stay on top of that and I did. 
but I never really took the time to smell the roses, so to speak, because there wasn't time. I hope you're able to, uh, listen to what you just said about 12 months from now. Uh, let's, <laughs> let's, let's talk about, uh, the, the all time record here for San Diego. You're going to break ed- every single record that's ever happened. And you're going to get tons of media coverage because of your main event stunt. You got the USA today, sports illustrated, New York daily news. Of course, the associated press, UPI entertainment tonight, ESPN, and local media, of course, from Chicago and Salt Lake City, where these guys play ball. But San Diego's covering it huge here, too. The preliminary buy rate's going to come in and show it's about 525,000 buys. So a $6.76 million gross. Just unbelievable. Uh, the media is going to report that Rodman got $1.5 million and Malone got 900000 You just said they got paid the same, so you're calling bullshit on that? Yeah. Perhaps what they're addressing is all of the other dates that Rodman made prior to this, because this is not Rodman's first soiree with y'all. No, and Dennis did do more TV than Carl did. So if there was a discrepancy in the pay, that would have accounted for it. But in terms of what they got paid for this pay-per-view, it was a most favored nations uh, agreement. And one of the things that I don't think can be overlooked And it was very apparent to me when I watched this show back for the first time in a long time, I guess since it happened is just how hot Goldberg was. And on the other channel, how hot stone cold, Steve Austin had become. He, he of course won the world title at WrestleMania at the end of March. Here we are in July. So, you know, he sort of ran the roost for three or four months there and that big crowning moment came with a lot of media coverage because Mike Tyson was involved. And now here you are showcasing Goldberg. And while he's not exactly involved in the main event, more people than normal are seeing the product because you're leveraging celebrity. Can the value of, of using celebrities properly in wrestling in 1998 be overlooked? No, it can't be. And and I think, you know, Mike Tyson, you know, I've said this to you before, when I heard, when Zayn Breslov called me, I was in Kissimmee, Florida, actually taking a flying lesson. And I just gotten done flying around and doing some instrument training and things like that. And I just got down on the ground and Zayn had paged me, I believe. I still had a pager at that time. Maybe he called me. I don't know. And I, I remember I went, you know, I think it was a page because I had to use a payphone. I remember I was on a payphone when I talked to, to Zayn. And that's when he first buzzed me that he had heard in, from people that he knew internally at WWE at the time. Uh, that they were bringing in Mike Tyson. And, I, you know, that was the moment when I went, okay, now these guys are, now they're making a comeback. Now I, was, I knew I was in trouble at that moment. And that was early. That was maybe in January, right, um, of, of 98. And then, obviously, when they used Mike Tyson as effectively as they did to set up Stone Cold Steve Austin and, you know, the Mr. McMahon character, I went, then I really knew I was in deep shit. Uh, and I had to put the pedal to the metal. So that was a perfect example of using probably the perfect celebrity at that time in Mike Tyson. I think, you know, we using Dennis Rodman was great, but I think adding Carl Malone and Kevin Green, and we'll talk about his match with the Giant, you know, later on in this, this episode. But, you know, we had, I think, three of the best athletes that we could have used in 1998 in their respective roles. No doubt about it. And it made all the difference in the world. That media that we got, 
between, you know, Carl Malone and Dennis Rodman and, you know, in, in aggregate was phenomenal. There is no way we could have afforded, even with the amount of money that we were making and success that we had, we could not have possibly afforded to purchase the amount of press that we got out of that. The dark match on this show is uh, Volano four and five beating Damien and Ciclope. What's your favorite Ciclope match, Eric? This one, that dark match was phenomenal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's get to the uh, actual card. Raven is going to get a win over Perry Saturn. I mean, this is the first match on the show and holy shit, man. These guys are pulling out all the stops, like double table spots and crazy bumps and weapons and uh, unbelievable stuff here. I really enjoyed this. Meltzer didn't like it as much. He gave it two and a quarter. I mean, I get there's a lot of interference and whatever, but this is a lot of action to start a pay-per-view. Were you for it? Were you against it? What'd you think watching it back after all these years? Yeah, I probably am more uh, aligned with Dave on this one. I I get it. You know, I've said this before. I'll probably say it a million times in the next, you know, 10 years. Just because I don't like it doesn't mean everybody else doesn't like it. I understand that there's a market for this style, especially back in 98. There was a there was a market for this style of match and these these types of characters. It just wasn't my personal taste. That's all. Uh, in terms of the quality of the match and the presentation that they put on, it was it was great. It just wasn't my kind of great. So it's hard to analyze it. You know, if you ask me what I feel about it, I would say, eh, looking back, I just, it was too much. Uh, it was a great spectacle. And that's really what this match was because they were doing so many crazy things, especially at that time, because you hadn't seen so much of it as we have, you know, 20 years later, but you know, for what it was, I think they did a phenomenal job. Let's talk a little bit about, um, these characters, Raven and Perry Saturn, well, maybe not just the characters, the actual performers. I think when these guys made the jump from ECW a year prior to this, uh, in that summer of 97, you know, fans had a really, really high hope for Raven. They thought Perry Saturn, you know, he was positioned at least as more of a tag team guy. And of course that's not going to be his main purpose here in WCW He's going to do more singles than tags, but Raven had been a top guy in ECW, which I know. You and Bruce sort of make fun of me saying that sometimes, but when they, when they make the jump, did you have that same, I've always got the impression that maybe WCW brass thought Perry Sidon was going to be a, a bigger and better performer than for them than Raven. And maybe I'm off base on that because as fans, we kind of thought it would be Raven. What say you keep in mind that <clears throat> I had worked with, uh, Scott Raven. Levy, <laughs> Scott Levy, Raven, Johnny Flamingo. Uh, I had worked with him at WCW before he went to ECW. So there was a familiarity, you know, and I, I traveled from time to time. DDP and I and Scott Levy would travel together. So I, I kind of knew Scott in, before he went to, to ECW. So there was a little bit of familiarity there, whereas with Perry Saturn, uh, there wasn't. Now, I didn't, again, do you mean Scott, to, do you mean to say when you say that? Do you mean that you had maybe already formed an opinion of yes. okay of where he was sort of in the pecking order, and now hey he may have went and got over, but I sort of see him at this level, and that I mean there's there's almost like a glass ceiling there for better or worse. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's fair. 
you know, it, it's just human nature. Right. You know, it, 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 I knew him. I knew what his work was like. I knew what his character when it was previously in, in WCW. He was a pretty good talker, uh, but he had a unique point of view, which is valuable, by the way. And I admired him and still do for his unique perspective on things, even though it didn't necessarily fit, you know, the kind of menu item that I would put on my restaurant. But I, again, I knew that there was a market for it. Raven really had a lot of influence over the creative vibe of the flock. You know, Raven was very much, in, you know, into that grunge, you know, again, going back in time, you know, Kurt Cobain and that whole movement was really grunge is what you're talking about like the, yeah. yeah it was it had a big influence on pop culture it had a big influence on fashion it obviously had a big influence in music and scotty really you know dug that and and uh, it was drawn to that and as a result that's kind of the presentation that the flock took on i get it just like i said you know not my cup of tea but i respected scotty for it but in terms of how i viewed you know, I didn't look at Perry Saturn as being the next big star right. in WCW. I looked at him as a, a very valuable addition to the roster who would add a diverse type of character to the roster because he was very unique. I loved his background. He was I think he was an Army Ranger or a paratrooper, one or the other. I, I really loved his background and his intensity when I first met him. So I saw him as a very valuable player, but I never really saw him as a breakout star. And I felt the same way about Scotty Levy or Raven. Uh, I thought he would be very, very valuable because I was familiar with him, even though I didn't really dig his take on things. But I, I never saw him as a breakout top star either. I, and, and I want to say this without being disparaging, because sometimes I say shit just to be entertaining and funny. Sure. But, you know, in, in this... No means am I taking a shot at anybody here or anybody's organization, but it's one thing to be a top star in a small company. I knew it. And it's another thing to be a top star. Well, I mean, it's just fucking obvious. No, I got, you got it. But you got Bret Hart, you got Bill Goldberg, you got Sting, you got Lex Luger, you got Hulk Hogan. You know, there's a pretty heavy roster at that point. That's what I, I wanted I, to I, ask. Like, like, I, I was gonna ask before you clarified. You know, when you sort of said, you know, maybe that's a fair thing to say when I said you had maybe figured out where he was in the pecking order because you had worked with him before. You also worked with the Diamond Stud and fucking Oz and those guys come back totally different in your head. That's because they went and got over for Vince when he was when, when his company was was beating yours versus he went and got over, in your opinion, a bingo hall. No. No, 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 no. I mean, if if you wanted to draw that comparison, I guess you probably can. But keep in mind, from my perspective, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash left WCW. You know, they, they went on to become big stars. They had a very, very high profile. Scotty Levy didn't have a very, very high profile when he went over to become a top guy in ECW. Not a jab, not disparaging. That's just a fact. There was a, a completely different comparison there, number one. Number two, Kevin Nash and Scott Hall, whether people want to accept it, believe it, or whatever, I don't really care at this point, um, they came over with a story. They came over with a backstory that was very easy to tell because it was true. They were in WCW previously. 
They didn't get treated well. They didn't get an opportunity to be big stars. And then they went to WWF, where they did become big stars. And then they came back to WCW to get revenge. It's a very simple premise that you could build an amazing story on, and that's what became the NWO. Scotty Levy didn't have that kind of backstory and, and certainly didn't go on and leave WCW and go to ECW and then become a big star because it was a, a newer, smaller, more obscure promotion. So you can't, you can't really compare the two. I can't anyway. You can if you want, but I, I can't. Uh, let's talk about the next match. You know, I guess we should mention your first match is Raven and Perry Saturn, two pretty damn good wrestlers. Next up, moving to Guerrero and Billy Kidman. This guy's gets nine minutes and 55 seconds. Great match. Meltzer loved it. And he says it's actually his first talking about uh, Kidman. This being his first singles match ever on a pay-per-view. He pulled out all the stops. And as a result, the two had the best match on the card directly from the observer four stars. What'd you think? Can you feel the earth shifting under your feet? You, you agree twice in the same day. Twice on the same day. God damn. Same You've already started selling out. This did not take long <laughs> at all. But it God went the damn. other way. No, no. Here's what I didn't like about that match. I didn't like the way where the match was placed. Coming off of the first match with, with Raven, uh, it, it, it looked the same. Now, the match was completely different. Don't get me wrong. I loved the match. I think Billy Kidman was phenomenal in this match. I loved the quality of the match. I loved the storytelling in the match. There was everything I loved. I, I loved everything you could think of about the match, except for I would have liked to have seen it maybe further up the card and some distance between the match we had just seen with Raven. Really a great match. Yep, it, it, it really was. I, and I, again, it's so much fun doing this show because, you know, I'm not forced, but I'm, I have to go back and look at this stuff in order to talk about it, right? And I go back and I see things like this match and I see Billy Kidman and it's just what an amazing athlete he was. The timing in this match, I mean, it was almost flawless. I mean, it really, really was. It was just fun as hell to watch. Go out of your way to watch it this week. You know, I feel like I say that once a week where there's one match I really, really strongly recommend. This week, it's going to be Hooven 2 Guerrera and Billy Kidman. Uh, Billy Kidman's probably breakout performance of his career up to this point. So go check it out. I think you'd be glad you did. Next up, we've got Stevie Ray getting a win over Chavo Guerrero Jr. One minute and 35 seconds. Uh, it's submission from a handshake. So uh, the deal here is Chavo spraying the crowd with a super soaker. And this is supposed to be happening before the hair versus hair match. And uh, that's going to go down between Eddie and Chavo. But the idea here is Ray is going to soften up Chavo and make him easy pickings for Eddie. But instead, Chavo just ran away, offered his hand for the handshake, and immediately submitted to save himself. Uh, Mike Tanay is uh, trying to make heads or tails of this. And we get to the, the main event of this little feud, and the hair versus hair match goes down, and Eddie beats Chavo in 11 minutes and 54 seconds. Meltzer would say it was a good match, but probably not at the level you'd expect from these two in a major stipulation type situation like this. He gave it three and a quarter stars. Uh, the match was, was pretty fun because you can tell Eddie Guerrero is sort of coming into his own. 
Uh, I loved his promo where he comes out wearing a t-shirt that says Eddie Guerrero is my favorite wrestler. That's all good stuff to me. Um, but then afterwards, Chavo shaves his own head and maybe that goes a little long. Uh, but I understand why this was a fun attraction. what did you think watching it back? I, I was going to tell everybody if, if, if you don't go back and, you know, watch this pay-per-view, you know, Bash of the Beach 1998 and the WWE Network, for any other reason, watch it for this match. I disagree with Dave on this one. Um, mostly. I, I thought it was maybe one of the best matches on the card. From my perspective, because of the story that it told. You know, if you go back prior to this match and you see the interview that Gene, um, Gene Oakland, I think it was Gene Oakland that did the interview with Eddie, um, Eddie was absolutely confident. And I think he said something like, you know, all I'm going to have to do is come out and pick up the pieces because Stevie Ray's going to, you know, beat you to death or whatever he said. I'm paraphrasing. You know, that that was, that changed the stakes. The, the odds were stacked against Chavo at that point. And then Chavo being, you know, the crazy in his character, you know, he was the lunatic. He was nuts. That was his a part of his character. He was losing his mind. Outsmarted everybody and went out there, sacrificed in that match with, with Stevie Ray so that he could save himself for Eddie. It's a simple backstory. It's a simple setup, not a backstory. It's a simple setup, but it was really, to me, it was entertaining and effective. The thing I really liked most about this match and why I recommend it so highly is because to me, it had that perfect balance and combination of great athleticism, perfect storytelling. Well, I won't, I won't say perfect, but great storytelling. And there was enough comedy in it. You know, there was a spot in that match early on where I think Chavo was making a comeback of some kind or got some offense in. And Eddie, you know, I mean, at the speed of sound, you know, on his knees, skated across the ring to hold on to the referee which is an odd thing for Eddie's character to do at that time. And then Chavo followed him on his knees, did the same thing and bit him on the ass. And I just, you know, now that's a comedy spot. That's something you wouldn't expect to see in a serious match, but it was done in such a way that it was like Chavo was making fun of Eddie as opposed to just trying to get a, a you know, a funny comedy spot in it would, it made sense within the context of this match and the characters that were in it. So from a storytelling point of view, and again, I think any good match, the matches that I like anyway, have a, a, a story, a beginning and a middle and an end, just enough entertainment at the right moment to kind of make you chuckle a little bit and then immediately, you know, sequence into something that was some believable heat and, and athleticism. And that's what this match had. It had a perfect balance of, to me, all of the elements that it takes to have a, a great story and a great match. So I didn't go. like the end. I, I do think the end when it was awkward is the best way I can say it. Yeah. I get it. I get what they were trying to do. I get Chavo, you know, finally grabbing the, the, the razor and, you know, shaving his own head and taking that opportunity away from Eddie, you know, instead of giving him the glory of shaving his cousin's head or whatever, or nephew. Um, Chavo being the nut and lunatic that he is, shaving his own head. I just think if he would have done it immediately – he would have seemed even crazier and, and would have been more effective. You talked a little earlier about maybe the perception, you know, where the pecking order was in your head with Raven and Perry Saturn in your head. Was there ever an opportunity for Chavo to leapfrog Eddie or was Eddie always going to be above him on the pecking order? I saw a lot of potential 
in Chavo. You know, Chavo was willing to to do anything. You know, he came. It was Chavo's idea to you know run around the ring on a pogo stick or whatever that thing with a horse's head on it. And, you know, that the was hobby Chavo. horse, baby. Come on. Yeah, I mean that was Chavo's idea. He was willing, and I think to me when at that time in particular, um, any time a great talent, somebody that could really perform in the ring was willing to step outside of the box and do something absolutely 180 degrees from who they really were to, to try to help create a character. That always excited me, you know, as opposed to, well, my, you know, he, he, I used to hear this a lot. Well, my character wouldn't do that. Well, okay. Well, your character's not really getting over all that much. So if you just want to keep doing the same thing over and over again, and you think at some point something's going to change, you can hold on to that if you want. And it was hard to get excited about working with talent like that. Whereas if you found somebody like Chavo, who was young, he was green, he was coming up. You know, this was pretty new to him, but he had amazing skill sets inside of the ring, and he was an amazing athlete. But be willing to go so far outside of them, especially with someone like Chavo Guerrero and the Guerrero family, who you know they represented tradition, you know, probably more so than anybody else on the roster at that point, um, or at least as much. And for them to, be, you know, for Chavo to be willing to step outside the box and play this crazy character or, or grab a hobby horse, whatever the hell it is, and dance around the ring and do stupid shit, to me was exciting because it just represented a guy who was willing to try new things. Well, here's some guys trying new things. Conan is going to get a win over Disco Inferno in two minutes and 16 seconds. Meltzer would say, actually, the best part of the match was before it even took place with Alex Wright and Disco mimicking Conan's mic work. Conan came out with Kevin Nash dressed up like the only 40 year old who's still in high school and Lex Luger dressed like one of the only 40 year olds who still wants to compete in a bodybuilding contest. It was basically short and sweet with Luger racking right outside the ring, Nash giving a high kick and power bomb the disco in the ring and Conan finishing disco off with the tequila sunrise submission quarter star. This, I mean, the whole segment feels like something from nitro or maybe even Saturday night, but here it is on pay-per-view. I mean, it was an opportunity to get the stars out there, I guess. What'd you think? I think anybody that, uh, is curious about whether Dave was right about this or not, should just go back and watch, watch the pay-per-view, watch the finish of the match, watch how the crowd reacted. And you tell me how horrible it was. It's just, yeah, you know, the, the, the crowd it, was it, over. It, it, it served its purpose. Yeah. That's what a match is supposed to do. It is supposed to elicit a response from the crowd at the appropriate time. It's supposed to, it is supposed to make the crowd happy. That's why you do pay-per-views. That's why you have matches. And in this case, yeah, you can, you know, you can criticize all you feel that you need to, um, to sell your dirt sheet, Mm. but you know, whatever just look at the crowd's reaction do you think anybody in that crowd if you watch it and watch where that i mean they blew the roof off the building for crying out loud do you think anybody you know went, yeah i would have really liked this match if kevin nash would have dressed differently oh, oh lex oh, luger still trying to hold on to his bodybuilding no they loved it they had a great time so you know i disrespectfully disagree with mr Meltzer on that one Meltzer would write, although it was never announced on television, at one point there were plans for a Sting and Lex Luger title defense against Scott Hall and the Disciple, but they were dropped a few days before the show, and in its place was Conan versus Disco, just to give the Wolfpack a brief appearance on the show. 
Paul and Scott Steiner, among others, were also there and made a brief cameo leaving with Hogan and Rodman after the main event. I got to say, it is a little weird, you know, Sting and Luger and Scott Hall, three of your biggest names, not really even on the pay-per-view. Was there ever any consideration to throw in together a tag team match just to have them out there? I don't remember that. Okay. No. And when I say I don't remember that, it's not that I don't remember how that decision came about. I don't remember if that was even true. It could have been. I, I, it's insignificant enough at, this, at that point, and even at this point, I don't think that's true. And you got to realize, you know, a lot of the matches on this pay-per-view were pretty short, and that's because we had a lot of talent on this show. You can't possibly, as deep as our roster was with top names, you can't possibly have every top name in uh, on every pay-per-view. And pay-per-views only went three hours. You know, you couldn't possibly do it. So um, maybe, maybe there was a situation where we talk, talked about doing it. I just can't imagine um, that was the case, but who knows? Could have happened. Let's talk about the uh, next match. And, and this is low key. One of the most fascinating matches to me, because you've got Kevin green, who is one of the absolute fucking all time greats it had all kinds of records at the time, uh, just a legit badass football player. And in amazing shape, I'm talking about better than a lot of the boys. Like, holy shit, man, this guy could have been a wrestler. Look at him. And he's going to take on the giant in seven minutes. And I remember watching this this week thinking, man, the giant's only been wrestling for like fucking three years. This is the tall ask here with someone who's as green as Kevin green. I thought the match was way better than I expected. Meltzer didn't think it was a good match, but. He did say green is an amazing worker for only his fifth pro match. And it was better than a lot of experienced people who are considered good workers have done on pay-per-view with the giant. Uh, he gave it a star and a quarter. I thought the finish was outstanding. Uh, giants in the corner. Kevin is going to get in the three point stance and charge at him. And the Giants just going to stop it with a choke. And then he puts him up for the choke slam and Kevin helped him a little bit to get up there. But once he was up there, the giant just fucking held him like a goddamn child and then slammed him <laughs> down. And I, I rewound it again. And I was like, I don't think everybody can appreciate. Look how he just holds him there. Like it's fucking nothing. And then slams him down. It made the giant look like a million bucks. And that's not normally the way pro athletes are used. The guy comes on and he gets a win over somebody not here way better than I expected and an unexpected result. I love this and thought it was an underrated segment on the show. What'd you think? I, I exactly the same way. And I, you know, watching the show, I just, I, I, I'm going through my Rolodex looking for Kevin green's contact information just to call him up and tell him, I know this is 20 some odd years later, but brother, you did a phenomenal job. I mean, you're absolutely right. The giant was green. Kevin Green was greener than green, no pun intended. And the giant was over 500 pounds. It's very difficult for, it's difficult for a guy like Bret Hart or Ric Flair to have a have a great match with a giant because you know it it changes everything when you're working with a guy like Paul White. It just it does, and there's limitations involved. Kevin Green did such an amazing job for Paul. It, it just, yeah, I want to find his phone number and call him because he, he did. Yeah, it was only his fourth or fifth pro match. I don't care if he would have been in the business for five years. It, it That match 
was almost flawless. There were a couple things that I saw that I went, eh. if, if I had to do this all over again, here's what I would tell him. You know, it, going into that finish, I think Kevin Green spent a little bit too much time uh, setting up in his three-point stance in the corner and running because it tipped the hat. I think if that, that sequence of moves would have happened a little bit faster and Kevin wouldn't have, you know, built up that three-point stance in the corner and there wouldn't have been as much delay as there was and it would have happened just, I'm not talking about a lot quicker, but maybe shave 30% of the time off of that and made it look a little bit more real and less obvious, I think it would have had even more impact because it would have looked a little bit more believable to the audience. But other than that, you know, there was one bumps or, or one spot in there where I think Kevin, his cell was just a little bit delayed. Um, <clears throat> pretty, pretty common. You see that in a, in a lot of matches with guys who have 20 years experience. But other than those two minor flaws, uh, if you want to call them that, uh, I just shocking how good it was. Let me talk a little bit about Kevin green um, a little more here. And I know, you know, I get tweets about, Oh, you stayed on that topic too long, but Kevin green. I mean, I think this is his last match with y'all and here we are praising this. Why didn't he do it again? Why was this the end? Uh, because his football career wasn't over and the NFL, you know, they got more and more strict with what their athletes could do off season. You know, guys were getting hurt doing silly stuff. You know, I think, you know, this is obviously much later than the match we're talking about here, but, you know, Ben Roethlisberger on a motorcycle, for example. You know, there's a lot of reason, you know, if you play in the NFL or the NBA or any other professional sport, there is a, a long list of things that you're no longer able to do. And as as time went on, you know, I think the NFL team owners went, hey, Kevin, we don't want to pay you, you know, 8 or $10 million a year or whatever he was making to play football. And then have you go out, you know, and break, you know, vertebrae in your back having a wrestling match with a 500-pound guy. You know, that that was the real issue. Kevin loved it. Kevin loved it. He loved being in the ring. He, he was disappointed that he couldn't do it anymore. Let's talk he wasn't just doing. He was, you know, and, and, and he, Carl Malone, same thing. Carl wasn't doing it for the money. Carl Malone didn't need our money. Believe me, he did not need our money. Neither did Dennis Rodman at the time. But they did it because they loved it. They really, really were passionate about it. And and Kevin, I think of the three, might have been the most intense about it. Carl would have been number two, Dennis number three. But they were all three really passionate about it and loved it. Let's talk a little bit about the next match. But before we do, let's talk about Chris Jericho. Uh, Jericho is, is coming into his own in this era. And he's done a little bit of a heel turn. He's getting a lot of attention in a different way. Now, uh, one of the things he's done is make it personal in 1998 with Dean Malenko. We saw the, the great bit that they had back in May at Slamboree. Two months later, the feud with Dean continues. Um, Jericho feels like there is a conspiracy theory to cause him to lose his championship. And, you know, he's going to take it up with Congress and he did a bunch of fun bits where he's going to talk to bill and you know, it's fun stuff that, that he's sort of shooting renegade style on nitro. And it's all about this Dean Malenko feud. And there is an agreement that these guys will not touch prior to the pay-per-view and Dean Malenko breaks that agreement. When Jericho takes it too far on nitro attacks him at the Georgia dome, he is therefore suspended and he will not be competing here. 
So JJ Dillon comes out and says, well, even though Dean Malenko can't be here and that match can't happen, we're going to put you in there with somebody else. And he's done all right, but he hasn't wrestled for months. And Jericho's like, oh, is he like a local jabroni, like a jobber? And surprise, it's Rey Mysterio, a returning Rey Mysterio. And he's going to get the win in six minutes. I thought the story was tremendous. I thought the match was pretty good, uh, but I probably expected a little more. Maybe they didn't have enough time, but maybe it was the right length since this is Mysterio's first match back. But the story continues, of course, because Dean Malenko reveals himself as actually being in the building. That's enough to distract Jericho. Ray gets the win. Ray's your new champ. I thought it was uh, the story was really well done here, maybe even more so than the match. What do you think? Agree with you a thousand percent. Uh, Jericho, you know, when I watched him, <clears throat> the show, I actually watched it this morning, uh, about four o'clock in the morning. Uh, it, it occurred to me that Chris Jericho was really ahead of his time at this point and just in his performance, you know, he had just the right, again, the, the right balance. I mean, some of the shit he did was just corny as hell and funny, but it fit the character. It wasn't corny and funny for the sake of being corny and funny. It was corny and funny and enhanced his character. And there's a big, big difference. Um, and this was all Chris and Dean. This was Kevin Sullivan wasn't writing this. I wasn't writing this. This was Chris was Chris was running his own show at this point. And he was so far ahead of his time. I and mean, when he came out there with a top cat and a cane, you know, in a, in a, in a dress, J.J. Uh, Dillon, he was going to do the little soft shoe dance, I guess is what he said. It was funny shit. But it fit his character so well. I, I too, thought the match was uh, – I expected more watching it back. I think because it was a no-DQ match, if I'm not mistaken, and it might have been a no-DQ match because they had to do a lot of stuff outside of the ring for risk of re-injuring Ray. It's a lot easier to have a match and, believe it or not, not get hurt outside of the ring because you're, you know, you're basically – kicking and punching and doing crazy out-of-the-ring stuff. Uh, the kind of match that Ray would have liked to have and Chris was capable of having, you know, the, the chance of injury was probably a little greater there. So I think, I don't remember it, but I'm guessing in retrospect that was the reason why we had the match, a no-DQ match, so that we could protect Ray to a certain degree and not have him try to do some of the crazy things that got him hurt in the first place. Well, let me tell you, the next match, I mean, process where we are so far. I, I know I'm putting over how strong the roster is, but again, we're starting with Raven and Perry Saturn. Then it's Hooventude and Billy Kidman. And then it's essentially, we'll skip the Stevie Ray thing. It wasn't really a match. Eddie Guerrero and Chavo Guerrero, and then Conan and Disco. But then the Giant and Kevin Green, which we just talked about how great it was, and Ray Mysterio and Chris Jericho. Holy cow. Well, how about what's next? Booker T and Bret Hart. How fucking loaded is this thing? And and they're they're wrestling for the television championship. I mean, these Crazy. are both world champions, and here they are competing for the TV title. Meltzer put it over really strong, saying that the work they did was real good. And here's a great compliment. One thing that sometimes goes unnoticed about Brett's work is his positioning in the ring, and that every move Booker T did looked perfect, even more so than usual, because Hart was in the right place at the right time. The problem with this match was it was too short and the finish came out of nowhere. Um, my favorite thing about the, the end of this, of course, Brett's going to flip out 
and start. Uh, Brett gets the win by D. I mean, Booker gets the win by DQ. But Brett flips out, starts attacking Booker's injured knee with a chair, much like we saw him do a year prior with Stone Cold Steve Austin and his legendary feud there. But then he puts the figure four on around the ring post, which is something that Brett popularized um, in the WWF a year or two prior to this. But as he's going down, like to apply the figure four, referee Billy Silverman's trying to get him to stop it. And you can see on camera, Brett flips off Billy Silverman and says, fuck you. You don't hear it, but you can see his lips. And it's like, wow, this is Bret Hart and his best heel stuff. Of course, Stevie Ray comes out to help his brother. There's no real interaction there. And just because it's wrestling and I haven't seen it in a long time, I'm like, well, he's probably going to attack him, but he doesn't. He's there to really just rescue his brother. Really well done. Not overthought, told a great story. Uh, but it did make the, the belt sort of secondary, but I mean, that's what the TV belt is. I really enjoyed this, especially for what it was. And that's rare for me to sort of say, I enjoyed a DQ match, but again, I thought the story was hitting on all cylinders. What'd you think? All of the above. The only thing that I would add is that again, watching it back for the first time since we did it, I'm not sure if Bret Hart would agree that he was at his peak at this time or not. If he wasn't, he had to be damn close. He looked so good. He was, I mean, go back and watch it. <clears throat> he was so crisp. And not only did he make, you know, Booker T look phenomenal as a result of his work, but his work, you know, Brett's own work when he had offense was so believable. Crisp is the only word that keeps coming, you know, to my lips. Unbelievable. Really, really amazing. And I that was my first thought, too. It's like, oh, my gosh, Bret Hart for the world television title? No wonder he's pissed off at me. <laughs> 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 but, yeah, it, it was it was fun to watch. It really was. Next up, it's your world title match. The hottest guy in the biz, at least for this week and, uh, well, for several more weeks to come. Bill Goldberg is going to retain his world title, getting a win over Kurt Henning in three minutes and 50 seconds. Of course, it's the jackhammer. Uh, Meltzer would say Goldberg's crowd reaction was very good, but not close to what it has been everywhere else of late, showing that a good percentage of the live crowd was there to see Rodman and Malone and didn't necessarily follow WCW storylines. He gave it one star. I mean, it's what you would expect from a Goldberg match. The one thing that stood out to me, or I guess there's three things that stood out to me about this. Number one. Goldberg still has like the cut on his forehead because he's headbutting the shit out of himself backstage. And we know that, you know, what we know now, uh, that's probably not the fucking smartest thing to do. I mean, maybe people knew that back then, but we certainly know more about the science behind that. Uh, but the entrance is just outstanding and the big gold belt has never looked better. You know, when he won it six days prior, it was spray painted and tarnished. And now it's been totally, you know, cleaned up and shined up and looks like a real world title. Uh, and Goldberg here is absolutely massive. I mean, this is probably the biggest he ever looked. He's busting at the seams. I mean, when you watch this back, I mean, this is your creation. Goldberg is not something you wrote a check for. It's the homegrown WCW guy. What'd you think? Shook my head watching it, realizing that at this point, Bill Goldberg had been in the wrestling business for 12 months. That's unbelievable. I mean, he debuted for t on TV with y'all in September and here we are fucking nine months later, 10 months later, 
Wow. On, I mean, that in and of itself. And look, I, all credit to Bill Goldberg. I mean, Bill's the guy that did it, right? Bill Goldberg's the guy that was in the power plant, and we gave him a couple dark matches, you know, right after he could figure out how to do two, two or three moves in a row. And when he came out and the crowd went, whoa, I mean, they reacted to him before they'd ever seen him on TV, which is one of the reasons we rushed him onto TV, because his immediate reaction when he came out for a dark match, the crowd was just in awe of him. And we had to take advantage of that and exploit it as soon as we possibly could, which led to, you know, Bill Goldberg having his, you know, whatever it was, 3,294 matches in a row without losing, uh, jokingly. Um, but we had to create that streak. And he only had a couple moves, so all of his matches were over in a hurry because he was so green. But to go from that to 12 months after he started the power plant to to be in a pay-per-view like this and, and working at this level and being the world heavyweight champion and still getting, despite his limitations, and there were many limitations, despite all that, getting the kind of reaction that he, he may not have got it here. And I would suggest to to Dave at that time, if he would have you know, wanted to talk about it, I think the lack of reaction had a lot more to do with lack of familiarity because of the lack of penetration he had in the West Coast market. As I said at the beginning of this episode, you know, WCW in general was almost non-existent on the radar, wrestling fans' radar, because of our timing on television for so many years leading up to this. We were kind of a new product, and the, the West Coast was not a stronghold for us. You just, you know, it takes time to get over in a market, no matter how good your product is. So I, I think the lack of reaction to Bill was probably just more the lack of familiarity than anything else. But uh, it's just phenomenal performance by Bill. Again, there were flaws. You know, I talked about earlier, you know, a little delayed sell in the Kevin Green match with the Giant. There was one moment in this match, I think Kurt Hennig hit uh, Bill with a big form when Bill was bent over, hit him across the top of the back, and it, you could have had a cup of coffee between the time that blow was landed and the time Bill sold it, which kind of takes you out of the moment. But it's a minor thing in the big scheme of things. The other thing I was really interested in watching this match, and I enjoyed is, you know, anybody that listens to me on the show knows how big a fan I was and still am uh, of Kurt Hennig. I just, I've never seen a bad Kurt Hennig match. And I've always, from the, t before I got into the wrestling business, when I really, you know, Kurt hooked me, you know, when his, with his matches with Nick Bockwinkle. You know, Kurt was just, to me, the epitome of, of an artist in the ring, especially for a bigger guy. He knew how to sell. He knew when to sell. He knew when to, I mean, his psychology was second to none. And I really enjoyed watching Kurt's work with Bill knowing how limited Bill was. It just made, to me, from my perspective, the way I watch things, it made me appreciate Kurt Hennig even more. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's a great performance by both. It shows you what both are capable of. You're seeing Goldberg at his peak here. Uh, nobody was injured, so real title on that. Uh, one of the things I want to mention before we get to the main event is they do a little cutaway and, uh, it's for the internet and, and we're showing that Lee Marshall is sitting down to chop it up with Conan and Conan has some sort of throwaway comment as you're closing the segment up about how, uh, he's got ladies, I think it's like his aunt in the parking lot selling fish tacos. 
<laughs> are these guys just like trying to just pop the boys and see what they can get away with or that's just Conan. Yeah. You know, Conan that's just he was freestyling and it and there was nobody better at it. You know, now it's I guess it would today in today's environment we might have got some blowback from that. Um but since it was Conan, if somebody else would have said it, I'm sure we would have gotten blowback. Um but yeah, it was Conan and he was having fun and he was ad libbing and that's just Conan. He was one of the best. Tons of respect for Conan. So very, he, very underrated. You know, I've said it before. And I got a lot of adverse feedback, negative feedback from it. But, you know, people, you can't underestimate. I've talked about Sean Waltman, X-Pac, how much he added to the chemistry and the just the overall vibe and presence of NWO. Conan was right there. I mean, it's a, it's a jump ball between which of the two really brought that kind of, I don't want to say street credibility, but that unique credibility to the NWO and, and really help balance and fill a void in a way, you know, where Scott and Kevin didn't, they, they each had their own charisma and unique kind of vibe that they brought. And obviously so did Hulk Hogan, but man, Sean Waltman and, and Conan, they're right up there. They're one of the reasons why NWO was as successful as it was because their phenomenal chemistry and their charisma. Your main event is going to go 23 minutes and 47 seconds. Of course, we've got the huge intros from Michael Buffer, Hulk Hogan and Dennis Rodman ultimately get the win over diamond Dallas page and Carl Malone. And, uh, yeah, these are some big boys and the match is just sort of there. I don't know what you could have really expected when you've got, um, Hulk Hogan and Diamond Dallas Page have both had really, really good matches, but they're asking a lot here, especially with two guys who aren't really wrestlers. Meltzer gives it negative star and a quarter. Meltzer would say that Hogan had booked 45 minutes for the main event. That was the expectation with intros and everything. And the show winds up going off the air 12 minutes early. They're, they're done 12 minutes early. So they filibuster for about five minutes and, and leave about seven minutes left on satellite time. That's according to the observer, the, the torch would report something similar saying that they had 45 minutes and that's what they had worked out the day before at rehearsals. Um, Wade would write that Carl Malone had spent several days leading up to this match, working out with Canyon at the power plant and that Rodman had done some stuff, but wasn't taking it maybe nearly as seriously as Carl Malone, what can you tell us about rehearsal and putting a match like this together where it is so high profile and there's so many eyes, you know, that are normally not on you and they're on you here. I mean, the, the pressure for a Hulk Hogan and a diamond Dallas page has to be through the fucking roof here. Does it not? It does. But you know, page in, in large part was, you know, obviously Hulk Hogan was going to be the general here, but page is the guy that did all the work in terms of laying it out. And obviously he had to get, you know, Hulk to approve it. And Hulk had his own input. I wasn't, you know, intimately involved in laying this match out because that wasn't my skill set nor my responsibility. And I didn't want to be another cook in the kitchen. There were other people, Kevin Sullivan was in there and other people I'm sure had a lot of influence or, or input. Uh, my, my voice didn't really matter too much at that point. 
So I wasn't immediately directly involved in it, but I do remember, you know, obviously because of my relationship with Paige, Paige put a lot of thought and time into this. So did Canyon, by the way, and obviously brought it to Hulk and everybody had their approvals. But, um, you know, I don't recall the issue of the, the, the match coming up short. I'll, I'll, I'll take both Dave and Wade at their word, and it probably did. I can see it happening because no matter what you lay out in a rehearsal, no matter what you you think you're going to do, once you get in the ring, you're going to have to ad lib a little bit. You're going to feel it, especially a guy like Hulk Hogan. He'll feel if he's losing the audience. And if he feels like he's losing the audience, it wouldn't surprise me if he cut it short. And that that's one of the reasons why guys like Ric Flair, Hulk Hogan, I'm sure Steve Austin and others who are really comfortable feeling the crowd as opposed to laying out an entire match, you know, three days before and going into the ring with a blueprint. You're going to do this and then I'm going to do that. And then you're going to do this. And here's this spot. A lot of guys like to work like that. Hulk Hogan wasn't one of them. Ric Flair's not one of them. You know, Roddy Piper wasn't one of them. Randy Savage was. He did like that kind of approach. But a lot of guys didn't. And I could see where they got into the ring and just by the ebb and flow of things that actually happened, someone decided, hey, let's cut this one short and go home because this is the time to go. And I don't I don't find fault with that. You know, so we went off the air seven minutes early. Ooh, big fucking deal. <laughs> as, as opposed to filling that last seven minutes because well, okay, let's... that was the plan. You know what I mean? No, I'm just but you have to look at it that way as a wrestling fan. You know, here here are two guys, Wade and, and Dave, who felt it necessary to point out that the match went short and it wasn't what was planned out in the days before. Okay. So what? Why why is that a flaw? Why is that a mistake? Just curious. Uh talk to me a little bit about the actual match. What'd you think? For what it was and who was in it, I thought it was fine. You know, is is it one of the matches that are I think are going to stand out in everybody's mind as being a spectacular match? Of course not. Did it serve its purpose? Absolutely it did. To all those additional fans who never watched wrestling or never watched WCW, you know, prior to this, who probably wouldn't know the difference between a four-star match and a one-star match, um, were they satisfied? Absolutely they were. Uh, it served its purpose. We've got probably got five or eight million dollars worth of free press out of it exposed the brand to an entirely different a new audience that otherwise never watched professional wrestling so did we check those boxes achieve those goals yes we did was the match su sufficient to satisfy the, the general wrestling audience not the 10 percent that you know really really analyze and critique and and discuss matches no, they probably were very disappointed, but that's not who we were catering to at the time. This is the match where, um, lots of people, Mark Madden and others would criticize Dennis Rodman's performance. You know, there's no, uh, enthusiasm. He does look like, you know, you were saying when he was training, you're like, oh, I don't even know that he's going to be able to, you know, stand upright. People were saying he was sluggish and looked like, you know, he was barely conscious for this match. Were you disappointed in his effort here? No. And, you know, and I know why people said that. And I, look, I, I like Mark Madden. I have a lot of respect for Mark. I just saw him. Well, I saw him at Starcast, actually, and had a chance to spend quite a bit of time with him. But, I mean, that's Dennis. That's what you get. 
you know, if you if you see Dennis, you know, in a restaurant, perfectly sober, in the middle of the afternoon, and you talk to him, you'll think he's probably going to fall asleep in the middle of the conversation. That's just Dennis. Um, would I have liked him to completely come out of his shell and be an over-the-top character and be a lot more animated and intense and you know, bring all that emotion that we would expect normally to see in the ring? Of course. But that's not who Dennis Rodman was. It's not who he is to this day. Dennis Rodman, by nature, is an ex- he's an introvert, which I know most people listening to this will think, what the hell? This is a guy that, you know, <laughs> he was on the cover of a magazine in a wedding dress when he was at the top of his game in the NBA. Um, that's that's a little bit of the way that Dennis deals with a lot of his own personal issues. He is a very, very shy person. And even when he was in the ring, you know, when the red light comes on, yeah, he'll he'll perform and he gets excited. But everything up and up until that moment, you almost carry a cattle prod when you're with him because you feel like you need to poke him every once in a while just to get a reaction. That's who he is. What about the decision to have the heels get the win? You know, normally, you, you know, the the end of these stories in, in theory is our heroes get the big victory. And that's not the case here. A little help from the disciple. Uh, Hogan gets the win. What do you think? I like it. I, I'm not. Look, I, I know the theory, you know, the blueprint. If you're a. Yeah professional wrestling writer or an independent promoter, whatever, you know, the prevailing logic is, you know, send them home on a pay-per-view happy. And generally I agree with that, but you can't do that every single time and expect people to feel like, wow, anything can happen. Keep in mind when, when we launched, and this probably had more impact on me than almost anything else in my experience in the industry was the focus group research that we did while we were preparing to launch Nitro. And we did these focus groups all over the country. We'd get 25 people in a room behind one-way mirror. Uh, Was it one-way or two-way? Whatever way. I could see out, they couldn't see in. And we'd watch the moderator conduct these focus groups of people that are current WCW fans, people that were current WWF fans, people that used to watch WCW and stopped and people that used to watch WWF and stopped for whatever reason. And the moderator would ask a bunch of different questions and get this dialogue going between the fans where they just start kind of like, you know, we do here in a way, you know, talking about what you like, what you don't like, you know, why did you quit watching? What, what would you like to see more of? What's the one thing you'd like to, what's the one thing that you think makes, you know, professional wrestling so much fun to watch just to you know for a couple hours they would go through this list of questions and the one thing that you know there was a couple but one of the threads that was kind of a through line through all of those different groups was they enjoyed the feeling that anything can happen once something became predictable it kind of lost its appeal to them I heard that over and over. We do these focus groups in Denver. We did them in Seattle. We did them, obviously, in Atlanta. We did them in Nashville. We did them in Baltimore. Did them all over the country because every region has its own kind of history or relationship or perspective on the business. So we we traveled all over the country. And after watching all of those folks, because I went to almost every one of them. And when you sit back and you listen to wrestling fans who don't know that I'm on the other side of the screen, by the way. Right. They don't. 
they don't know that you're there. So they're being completely honest. They're not, they're not saying things because they know I'm going to hear them. They're just having a conversation, which makes it a fascinating thing to, to be a part of. But that was the one through line is, you know, they, they want to feel like anything can happen and they don't like it when it's predictable. And for that reason, you know, not, and maybe I use it as a justification. If, if someone wants to criticize me for it, that may be a valid criticism. I'm not going to completely deny it. But the other reason I felt really comfortable in breaking the formula is because, okay, let's do it a little different. Yeah, people don't expect it. Not, yeah, because and we, you know, we tried to do that as often as we could on Nitro. But, it, you know, so, I wanted to do it on pay-per-view as well. So what you're saying is you really like the swerve, bro? <laughs> no, I took it. Uh, there's, a, there's a difference between swerving because you don't know how to tell a story and doing something unexpected and doing it in a way that makes sense. Well, something unexpected happened Bro. this past week, and, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But I do want to mention the next night on Nitro, it starts out with uh, yourself, Hulk Hogan, Scott Hall, Vincent, the cycle, Kurt, Rude. And Hogan saying he's sick of all the crap, Jack. And he's got an issue with Scott Hall because. If you remember on the prior nitro Goldberg had to get through Scott hall in order to have that main event match for the world title against Hulk Hogan. And of course he beat him. So he's saying this wouldn't have happened had, it, you know, had you done your job. So he challenges him to a match that night. And of course, this is when chaos is going to ensue. I guess we should mention the Wolfpack version of the NWO was formed in May. So we're here in July. So it already exists, but now hall and Nash. You know, it's all intertwined. Did you feel like coming out of this pay-per-view, the right direction was to focus more on the NWO infighting? I mean, clearly you did, but in hindsight, would you have done something different or was that still the move you'd go to? Oh, I have to put myself back in that, that point in time and try to remember everything else that was going on. Look, in retrospect, you know, it's easy to have 2020 hindsight. Sure. I can, I can make myself sound really smart and go, nah, we should have really done it differently. Um, but I, I, I think NWO was so hot. We were trying to keep it fresh. We were trying to find ways to keep it fresh. We had played out the black and white, I think, to the extent that we possibly could have, as long as we possibly could have. So I, I think it was time. I think in order to create story, we had to create dissension. So yeah, I'm, I'm comfortable with the decision we made, even looking back at it now, looking at the kind of the macro view of it, you know, the big picture of it all. I'm, I'm comfortable with it. You know, you can pick it apart in hindsight, but at that time, given what we had, the role we were on, as you so clearly, you know, outlined in the beginning of this episode, I think it was the right decision at that time. Well, you watch the show back for the first time in a long time. There's lots of uh, good stuff on the undercard. The main event, you know, sort of was what it was, as we like to say here on the show. Scale of one to 10, 10 being the best pay per view ever. What would you rate uh, Bash at the Beach 98? Eight and a half. Wow. Coming in pretty strong. Yeah. I, I mean, how could it have been, you know, again, you pick it apart in 2020 hindsight. We could have, I would have liked to have seen the Chris Jericho match and, and the, the Rey Mysterio match, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more out of that match and, and seeing 
what those guys were capable of. But again, given you know Ray's situation coming back off an injury, that might not have been possible. But in in a fantasy world where all things are, po- are possible, you know, if Ray would have been 100 percent healthy and that match would have taken place inside of the ring without the no, no DQ stipulation, we would have had a phenomenal, phenomenal textbook match out of those two. That could have probably got us to a 10 or maybe even over. Um, the the Raven match starting off the show, I'm not so sure I would have gone with that. I would have probably liked to see Billy Kidman uh, in there and, and opening up the show just because his match was just... That's the kind of match that I like to see in the open. And I would have possibly moved you know Raven's match up the card a little bit just to separate them. So I think if we would have been able to achieve those two... I guess, or three things that, that would hit us a 10, but you know, some of that wasn't possible. Well, what is possible is for us to take a minute and tell everybody what's coming up on the show. But first I think we should give a, a happy birthday shout out uh, to Terry Funk who turned 75 today. You and I are taping this on June 30th. Uh, wow. Terry Funk 75. That's a, a big milestone. What's your favorite uh, Terry Funk story in your time working with him in WCW? Didn't really, you know, I don't really have any backstage stories or on the road stories with Terry. I, I loved working with him. Uh, I've seen him, you know, at a couple of different events over the years, and I just love being in his presence. There's some, he's like Dusty Rhodes in that way, <clears throat> or like Dusty was. You, you, if you're in a car with him or you're sitting at a table with him having a sandwich or drinking a beer, there's just kind of an aura that is extremely unique and something that I'm, I'm drawn to just, and I guess because he's been there and he's done it and he's so legendary, but he's got a great sense of humor. Um, when was honored to work with him, uh, for one match in the ring, uh, just because of all of the above, he, in my mind, he's one of the legends of all, one of the greatest legends of all times. And he's just a special cat. So happy birthday, Terry. Yeah. I mean, he's on my Mount Rushmore and one of the greats and, uh, we're looking forward to, uh, what's great coming up next week here on the show. We're going to do something totally different. Uh, I should mention that on July the 5th, which is this Friday, Bruce Pritchard and I are going to do a watch along of the nitro that came right before this pay-per-view we just talked about. Of course, that's when Goldberg got the big win over Hulk Hogan at the Georgia dome. So if you would like to get Bruce's take on the biggest nitro in history listen to something to wrestle this friday at noon but next monday eric and i are going to give raw the exact same treatment we're going to watch the july 6th 1998 what the wwf put up against that nitro from the georgia dome famously we've got brawl for all in there and uh the dx parody of the nation of domination so that'll be fun next week but i guess we should stop stalling and talk about what everybody really wants to know this week. Um, you know, and, and, and I think people knew this was coming that we had to address it, but man, you throw the biggest 4th of July celebration anywhere in the country. Uh, what do you got on tap this week? It's going to be fairly quiet this year. Um, I've got some friends and family coming in, um, Bob and Tammy Niederkorn from La Crosse, Wisconsin, a couple of really, really close friends have been coming out here every year uh, for probably 10 or 15 years are coming out, <clears throat> bringing a lot of great Wisconsin cheese and sausage with them. I've got some, uh, my cousin and his kids are coming out and we're just going to, we're going to lay a little low this year. You know, we're going to lay a little, cause there's a lot going on. 
<laughs> a lot going on. So we're going to kick back, enjoy it, and then uh, pack up the truck and move to Beverly. Okay. So now we can give you the floor. I've teased it for over an hour. Uh, what would you like to say? What would you, how would you like to address all the rumor and innuendo this week? Well, it's not rumor and innuendo at this point. It's fact. Uh, you know, it's a, first of all, I want to say thank you. I've overwhelmed with the support and the positive response that I got on social media after WWE made the announcement that I'll be joining the team and, and getting involved with SmackDown. The, the amount of response I got, I knew it was going to be, I knew I'd get response. I knew it'd probably be a lot, but I was absolutely overwhelmed by the nature of that response and how positive it was and just the sheer volume of it all. I think people are really excited. I, I, I want to let everybody know um, the magnitude of this opportunity and the challenge and the commitment that goes along with it is not lost on me. You know, there, there's been a couple times over the last few days where I've been driving around on my truck or taking my dog for a hike and going, wow, this, this may be the, it's not maybe, this is the biggest opportunity I've ever had in this industry. Granted, you know, when, when Bill Shaw may be, you know, president of WCW, obviously that was a very, very big moment, but I was learning on the job there. You know, I was taking, I had nothing to lose there. I was taking a, a, a company in WCW that had never had a turned a dollar of profit. That was a, such a distant number two to WWF at that time that we weren't even really number two company that was fraught with a bad history and you know all kinds of internal issues so i had nothing to lose and in this situation you know this is an entirely different ball game here this is a very sophisticated company in wwe there is a great team already in place i mean they're moving their you know the smackdown show to fox network which is going to obviously have a lot of eyeballs on it in every way so the magnitude of the opportunity is not lost to me. But I, I said this in a tweet. This is probably the only thing I'm really going to say beyond this, is I'm and I mean this. I mean, almost get a tear in my eye saying it. I'm honored. I'm humbled, and I, I cannot express, even here, because this is a different kind of excitement for me. I haven't felt this way, maybe in forever, but for at least 20 years. This is a whole different, whole different ball game, and I'm. I, honestly, Lori and I and the, my dog, Nikki, we're going to load up our truck and we're heading out to Stanford, probably on the 10th or 11th of July. We're, we're, I mean, literally, we're going out there with the clothes on our back and some of it in boxes and we're starting over from scratch. And I've never been more excited. Just the, the opportunity at this stage in my life and in my career to be able to make a move like this is so it's not exciting, doesn't cover it. It's thrilling. And I just can't wait. So there's some breaking news. You're moving to Connecticut. Yeah. No, I'm, this is not a, this is not a remote control kind of an opportunity here. This is a deep dive. You know, this is, I'm sure a 23, seven kind of a gig. This is not something I can do, you know, on my laptop remotely. This is, this is the real deal. And as a result, you know, the rumor and innuendo is our podcast is ending. I'll let you answer those, uh, concerns oh hell no hell no that was one of the things that i you know i was most concerned about going into this because i love doing this 
show. And, and Conrad, I know a lot of people jokingly said, oh, he's the kingmaker. You know, if you want to get a job in wrestling, just, you know, do a podcast with Conrad Thompson. It's not quite that easy. <laughs> but I think you've a couple things that, is, that have happened as a result of this podcast. One, you've given me the opportunity to go back and look at these shows and discuss all this stuff. And I've been, even in my own mind, been able to kind of look at things from an entirely different perspective than I ever have as a result of doing this show. Um, I feel more energized about the industry as a result of doing this show. And I think both of those things probably had some impact, hard to quantify it, but probably had some impact on this entire process. It's a lot easier for me now to get as excited as I am about the product as a result of sitting around and talking about it with you two or three hours every week for the last year or so. Um, it, it, it did have a factor, just re-engaging to the extent that we have here on this show has, has really helped me a lot. And that was important. And I have fun doing this. You know, I have fun when you bust my balls. I have fun when I, you know, I, I just have fun doing it. And it was really important to me that I, I, I really was hoping I didn't have to give up this opportunity. And that's one of the things I'm also grateful for. In addition to this massive opportunity that I've been, you know, given, um, I still get to do this show. So it's going to be great. So the show continues. That's the good news. The bad news is much like with something to wrestle, the live shows are going to come to an end. So, uh, if you, if you missed 83 weeks live, uh, it's going to be a while before you get to see that again. Uh, obviously Eric has now uh, accepted a, as he called it, 23, seven job. Uh, so we did have, you know, some dates planned and we're going to hit the reset button and sort of realign those we had. Uh, something planned for Canada and something planned for Europe. Those will go on pause and on the back burner, but the show will maintain right here uh, every week that we can. I'm sure occasionally there will be a week where we have to miss here or there, and we don't count on that, but we're going to try to get ahead and put some in the can so you can count on consistent uh, new content every single week. And I do want to mention that uh, the podcast is staying with Westwood One. There's been lots of concern that Oh, well, you guys are going to be on the WWE podcast network and you're just going to talk about current stuff. That's not our format. We're going to stick with the same format. Uh, and I know that this is going to disappoint some listeners, but we're not going to talk about anything current, uh, without Eric and I even ever discussing this. I know Eric can't do that. And we're not going to put him in that spot. This show is about nostalgia and that's what we're going to continue to do here on the show. It's been a successful format for us so far. We're not going to deviate. So. Uh, I appreciate everyone's excitement about Eric being back on the squad, but at the same time, we're not going to be answering, Hey, why'd you do this with AJ styles or Nakamura? We're not talking about that. Fair to say, Eric, more than fair, <laughs> but listen, I'm excited for you. Uh, and I do want to clarify uh, what you were talking about earlier. I never said, do a podcast with me and get a job with WWE. We know how this happened. You're the most qualified dude for the job. Uh, when, when they need somebody to talk TV and talk wrestling, who's more qualified than you. And you certainly have a, a great ally up there now. And we know who we're talking about. And, uh, but this had nothing to do with me. So all the, the funny, Oh, Conrad, the Kingmaker that's tongue in cheek from other people, not from me. Uh, I'm, I'm just tickled to be here and I'm just a fan and really appreciate the opportunity to do this show with you and Bruce every week and look forward to next week where we get to do a watch along of a Monday night raw that. Well, got smashed by Goldberg and Hulk Hogan. Can't wait. 
So stay tuned uh, this Monday and every Monday for more 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff and Westwood One. See you next week. Hey, everybody, this is Dan Bespris, host of Fantasy NBA Today, a daily fantasy basketball podcast. We cover every box score from every game every day, plus bonus shows on buy low opportunities, players to stash, schedule analysis, and really anything you could need to smash your league into deliciously tiny pieces. Catch the Fantasy NBA Today podcast, part of the Believe Network, on YouTube or wherever you listen.